You know, throughout the Gospels, there are a number of teachings by Jesus that are labeled the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, they're the teachings of Jesus that at a casual glance appear to be so way over the top, so radically extreme, that they become hard for us to easily understand. Let me give you a, a couple examples before we look at our text. You know, so in John, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. You know, from hindsight, we recognize that as, as re referring to communion, but to the people who he was talking to, they were thought, of, thought he was actually talking about eating his flesh in blood. And John tells us that many people who had been following him up to that point stopped following him because they couldn't understand that saying. Another one, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now that doesn't sound typically like Jesus when you listen to other things. In other places he talked about loving your enemies and, and praying for those who persecute you. Jesus talks about giving you peace of mind and heart. Jesus there is not talking about literal warfare, but he is saying that the question of who Jesus is will divide families, will divide communities, and often will call hostility. And we see that in our world today very clearly. The hard sayings of Jesus are not meant to be taken literally, but they convey a very deep and important truth about what it means to be a disciple. We can't just write them off or ignore them because of their radical nature. So it's kind of the, the difference between a lint chocolate. Now, you know, I can bite into this mm, and get to that rich, creamy center real easily, and it's good. But the hard saying to Jesus, but that's different than what I would call a Tootsie Roll Pop. Now, Tootsie Roll Pop has this Tootsie Center. But if I bite into it, it's very possible I could crack a tooth. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, because it's just so hard. So what do you have to do? You have to kind of suck on it and work at it to get into the center. And so in many ways, the hard sayings of Jesus are, are like that Tootsie Roll Pop. You kind of have to work them around. You have to kind of suck on them for a while and, and enjoy them and, and, and get down to figure out what is really being said with them. Now, I, I was hoping maybe Lance would be here or someone else, but, you know, I've got a, a, I had to buy a bag of Tootsie Roll Pops, a bag of Lindt chocolate. So if any of you want some afterwards, feel free to come forward and, and take them because Sue Ellen will not want me to bring them home. <laughs> so enjoy them. But our, so our text is talking about one of these hard sayings of Jesus. When he spoke to the rich young ruler saying, you lack one thing, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. You know, if, if you were here last week, you know, I, I said Jesus there is speaking hyperbole, meaning that he's exaggerating to make a point. And the point he's making is extremely important about what it means to be a disciple. And it's very easy for us to kind of dismiss or ignore those words and not really, because of the radical nature, not really get down and figure out what he is really trying to say there. So today we want to ask that question, what does Jesus really mean when he spoke those words to the rich young ruler? What is he really saying to us today? So the first thing we have to understand is the setting in which he was speaking. And, I, and I'm going to come at this from a couple of different perspectives. 
You know, today we often assume that if someone grows extremely wealthy, that maybe they cheated someone, took advantage of people, were dishonest in some way. You know, some political economic systems make that assumption. Socialism and communism assume that the wealthy do not treat people well, and it, the state has to intervene and assume total care for the people and to protect them from the wealthy. But the irony of those systems is the wealth only gets concentrated in the hands of a few. Even today in our country, as we, we are kind of drifting toward that, a socialism kind of view where the government is making the final determination of what's best for everybody, what we are all supposed to do, and what's happening in our country today, the wealth is being concentrated in the hands of a few. More and more people live below poverty line, the middle class is, is declining, and that's just a, a, an accepted true fact. And so what scripture is talking about in, in some ways in the theme that we look at and sometimes think about and we hear about people who get wealthy who do dishonest things, that's nothing new. You know, if you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll discover that one of God's judgments of Israel and their kings was related around this theme the wealthy and the powerful acting corruptly to get theirs and in the process oppressing the poor. Ezekiel wrote, The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner, from the immigrant, without justice. Or listen to Amos. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. You enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. Now that's not what Jesus is implying here though, okay? That's one way we often look at wealth. Jesus is implying something exact opposite. When this rich man asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, he then quotes the last six of the Ten Commandments. But he changes the last one, do not covet your neighbor's property, to do not defraud. Why? Because he's asking this man who is wealthy how he has conducted his business affairs. Has he been honest and treated his workers and servants fairly? Has he tried to cheat others? Has he taken advantage of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants to accrue his wealth? And so what this man does is, when he answers Jesus, he says, I've never done any of those things. I've always tried to honor the commandments of God from my youth up. And Jesus accepts his word verbatim. He accepts exactly what you're saying. And we're told that Jesus loves him because of his sincerity. He could see his sincerity. Jesus is not condemning welfare. He's not assuming that if you're wealthy, you've been dishonest and corrupt. There's nothing wrong with having money and being wealthy. Jesus had a number of supporters who were financially well off, and they supported him and his disciples all through their, his three and a half years of ministry. Many of the major characters in the Bible, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were extremely wealthy. Job is a story of about a man who was extremely wealthy. King David rose as king, became extremely wealthy. The question is not, are you wealthy? It's what, what we do with that wealth and how it impacts us. So in Jesus' own day, his disciples assumed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. They're assuming and they, their assumption in life was, well, if, if God has made this person wealthy, he's blessing him. So he must be doing something good. 
The story of Job is a classic example. Job was extremely wealthy, and when Job lost all his wealth, when he lost his family to natural disasters and everything else, his three friends assumed that Job must have done something wrong, that he had sinned and offended God, and God had withdrew his blessing on his life. Well, the story of Job completely refutes that logic. The belief that God will bless a person who follows him with prosperity, Job completely blows that story out of the water. But it's also an assumption that's very common today. You know, in fact, every survey I've seen it, that it, this kind of preaching is actually increasing in American churches. A preaching that says that if you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy and you're going to prosper financially. What we call a health and wealth gospel. We're assuming that if you're following God, you'll be blessed in a very special way. And so that's why the disciples were completely shocked when Jesus said to them how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. They were shocked. And then a few sentences later he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now having grown up in a church I have all, all kinds of explanations for that and talk about a needle gate and, and there's really no evidence that any of that is really true. I think the best interpretation I've heard of that is, is that it was a, a phrase, an expression in a day that basically just said it's in, almost impossible. Kind of like we say, finding a needle in a haystack or a snowball's chance in, <laughs> you know. It's just saying it's impossible for a rich person to, to get into the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus was actually telling them it is, is that wealth is actually a hindrance for a person to come follow Jesus. The disciples, again, were so shocked, so they asked Jesus, who can be saved? Their assumption was wrong. Wealth is not a guaranteed blessing of God for those who follow God. So Peter blurts out in the, in the following discussion, well, we've left everything and the other disciples to follow you. You know, wh what will happen to us? And Jesus goes on to tell them that God will bless them in many different ways. You'll be surrounded by people who will be family even if your family deserts you. You have a, a family of faith that can be even deeper sometimes than a family of blood. And, and, you know, and he'll, you, know, you, you will be blessed a hundredfold in different ways in this life and in the life to come. But Jesus kind of blows out the water that if you're wealthy, if you're being blessed by God, if you're, if you're following Jesus, you'll be blessed by God when he says, one of the benefits you'll also get is persecutions. <laughs> so he's saying it's not always going to be rosy because you follow me. And then he closes out the statement with many who are first will be last and the last first. What's Jesus saying there? Very clearly what he's saying in that context is you may be wealthy and first in this life, but in God's kingdom and economy, wealth and the spiritual blindness it brings will make you last in the really important and eternal things. And so what Jesus is really teaching us here is this. Money is a dangerous trap that blinds us to the spiritual realities of God's truth and kingdom. Money is a dangerous trap that blinds us to the spiritual realities of God's truth and kingdom. Now, in, in understanding the nature of this trap, 
you know, I'm especially indebted to the teaching of, of Tim Keller, a re former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Jesus, in all his parables and teachings, talks, the most he talks about is the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like this. But when he zeroes in on specific ethical or lifestyle issues, he speaks about money more than any other single issue in the Gospels. You know, although there's some quibbling about the exact number of parables there are and what a parable is, it's, it's estimated that 16 out of 38 to 39 to 40 are parables about money. About 25% of all Jesus' teaching focuses on stewardship and what's stewardship. It's making use of the resources that we, for God's kingdom, what we have. Money is a part of that. So a couple of parables clearly focus on the blindness that wealth may cause. You know, the Gospel of Luke hits especially hard on this issue. And in Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. Now, the rich fool is a man who gains great wealth, and in those days, your wealth was based on production from the ground. And so it says he had loads of products, and he built these big barns to stall all his goods. And he said to himself, well, I can just kind of coast, and I've got more of these goods. I can and, and sell them as I need. I, I don't have any worry. I can just relax and enjoy life. So Jesus ends his parable by saying this, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man of Lazarus. The rich man enjoyed all the best in this life, in this world. Lazarus was the poor man, a beggar, who only existed on what others gave to him. Both died. Lazarus went to heaven, the rich man went to hell. So the rich man appeals to Father Abraham to send someone to his five brothers to warn them that they won't be blinded about spiritualities, not be blinded by their wealth as he was. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, well, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to even listen to somebody who rises from the dead. <laughs> you think about that. You know, Jesus is clearly saying that wealth and obsession with wealth and money is a trap that blinds us to our spiritual needs. With wealth, we think we have no needs. We're in control of life. We don't need anyone else. And we especially don't need God to tell us what we do with our money or wealth. Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, it's a commentary on, on the Gospel of Mark, highlights the writings and research of Andrew Wall. And he's a well-respected English professor who has spent a lifetime study of Christian missions and worldwide Christianity. He just passed away, like Keller, just in, in the last year. Wall points out that Christianity is the only major religion that is not geographically centered and limited. Think about this. Islam began in Arabia and is centered in the Middle East still. Buddhism began in the Far East and is centered still in the Far East. Hinduism originated in India and is basically limited to India. Now, today we're much more exposed to those various religions because of the internet, communication, and because we have so many refugees in the world that people are forced all over the place. But still, they are fundamentally limited by ge geography. Christianity is the only one that isn't. It's been on a pilgrimage since the days of the early church. You think about it. 
Christianity began in Israel, and all of its early adherents were basically Jewish. But eventually it embraced the pagan Gentiles. And, and, and Jews as a whole looked down on, on Gentiles. They were pagans, they were barbarians. Eventually they embraced it in the Hellenistic world, and, and so the church kind of migrated out of Israel to North Africa, to Rome and the Mediterranean world, and it was there for several centuries. But then what happened? Christianity began to move into Europe, and the Celts, and the, and the Celtics, and the Saxons began to embrace it. And the center of Christianity began to migrate to Europe, to England, and it was there for the better part of a thousand years. But then, think about it again, what happened? You know, Christianity began to migrate to the West through colonization, to countries that were poor and everything else. And, and so the Christian faith began to really decline in Europe and England, where it was once dominant. And the same thing, it reaches peak in America in the 1950s. And the Christian faith has been declining in America ever since the 1950s. Church attendance has, has been dropping. And the ability to communicate has been dropping. But in the 20th century, it began to explode in Africa, Asia, and South America. And that's where it's growing unbelievably rapid. You know, in the so-called third world. Now more than 50% of all, anybody who claims to be a Christian in the world resides in the southern hemisphere. And the southern hemisphere has always, always been the poorest part of the world. A couple examples. You know, in the U.S. it's estimated that there are roughly 2.5 million Episcopalians or Anglicans. Well, Nigeria alone has 17 million Anglicans. Uganda has 8 million Anglicans. And they're only a small population compared to us. Wall asked the question about why other re religions remain geographically based, but Christianity continues to migrate. And he concludes that it has to do with the heart of what the Christian faith is all about. The cross is the center of the Christian faith, and it is all about giving up privilege and power and wealth. All those things tend to be self-centered in their focus, but the cross is about learning to be other-centered, loving God and loving others, and committed to serving. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, that verse which we read in the thing, though Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. What he's saying is Jesus lived in the presence of God, in the majesty of heaven. He gave up those privileges to live in our midst. He was born in a stable to poor parents, he gave up having a home and any semblance of a normal life and ultimately gave up his life being put to death on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And later in Mark 10, the same chapter we're reading now, Jesus said, I came not to serve, but to, I came not to be served, but to serve. Paul and elsewhere will write about in 1 Corinthians and we'll read those verses a little later about how God shows the weak, the poor, the despised, to shame the wise and the powerful, the wealthy, so that all would understand no one can boast in the presence of God. We can claim no credit for who we are or that we've earned God's favor. So going back to Wall, his research concludes that Christianity always moves away from wealth and power and moves towards weakness, poverty, and marginalized people. Let me quote Keller 
and, and what he, he summarizes Walt teaching, he says this, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes virtually doormat in those places, and the center moves elsewhere. And what he's saying is, is that when Christianity exists in a place where there's real affluence a long period of time, Christianity loses its power because we begin to think we have control and we don't need God as much. We're not as desperate to cling to him. You know, that's why we want to know why Christianity is fading in America. He's given us the, the truth as to why it's fading in America. And, and so, you know, that's why Jesus asked the man who came to him, the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What he was saying, we talked about two weeks ago, was no one is good. We all fall short. Therefore, we all need Jesus and the cross to be brought into a relationship with God. So what Jesus was teaching in the gospel 2,000 years ago is actually confirmed by Wall looking at 2,000 years of church history. The gospel always migrates away from wealth. That's one of the reasons why we see what we see in our own country today. We've been affluent for so long. The accumulation of money and wealth tends to blind us to our true spiritual condition. It becomes a dangerous trap with wealth, we have more choices in life. We feel like we're in control. And therefore, it becomes much harder to realize that we need God's grace and mercy found at the cross as much as any person in the world. The poor, the marginalized, the outcast are much quicker to see their needs. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is money is a dangerous trap that blinds us to the spiritual realities of God's truth in kingdom. So now we have to ask, what does that mean for us and how we live? How do we sort that out? You know, we live in an affluent culture, so how do we know if we succumb to the spiritual trap that money represents? And that's really an important question for us as a follower of Jesus. You know, as I started to think about this message this week, I realized the last two weeks were the perfect lead-in to this message because I think there are three levels at which we have to explore that question. The first one is, what is the true love of our heart? You know, when we looked at that issue last week, we saw that sin is a far deeper issue than just breaking one of commandments, God's commandments. First and foremost, it's a matter of misplaced loves. We don't love the right thing. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? That's the heart of it. And and, you know, and so when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor, he's saying to him, you love your wealth and possessions more than you love me. And to the man's credit, he realized that. You know, Jesus put the finger on his heart love, and he knew it. He knew he loved his wealth and possessions more, so he went away sad. But the reality was he was in a better position, maybe at some future point after Jesus' resurrection, maybe he reconsidered his decision. We don't know. Only God knows. But he was in a better position to see the truth because he wasn't blind to his heart love anymore. 
He understood that money had been a trap, a trap that kept him from truly loving God. Now the problem for most of us is we may not see that in ourselves. I think it's a very hard thing for us to deal with in our culture that maybe I love money more than God in reality. Now that would require us to understand the deepest motivations of our heart. And, and Tim Keller called this the root of a tree. You know, the roots of the tree are underground. You really can't see them. They're invisible to us. And so we may not be able to see that. And I know that. Why? Because I'm thinking about, you know, when Sue and I first got married, we had absolutely no money. I mean, we paid for our own wedding. She had no money. She was on Section 8 on welfare. I had $900 on an account, and that's how we did our wedding, with $900. You know, we lived in a Section 8 apartment. We paid $150 a month rent, and we just barely survived those first few years. Then we went to seminary, you know, and, and we were working, and we had babies, and, you know, I realized that every time I sat down to pay bills, it was a nightmare. So Ellen didn't want to be around me because I was so, how am I going to pay the bills? Where's the money going to come from? I was so wrapped up in it. And, and what the truth was there? I was thinking money was the answer to our lives. So I might have been training for seminary, but I was caught in a trap of money, worrying about what I didn't have and focusing on it. You see, sometimes it's very hard to under, us to understand what is our first love. I didn't understand that in the moment, but looking back, I can see it very clearly. At this level, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand the true meaning of the cross? Jesus gave up his riches and became poor for us. He gave up any claims as right to God's son and he claimed to his life. At the cross, he chose to love God more than anything else. You know, I said earlier, Paul wrote that the cross doesn't make sense to the world because it reverses all the values of the world. Wealth, power, money. Paul goes on to say, but God chose the foolish things of this world to put the wise to shame. He chose the weak things of this world to put the powerful, the wealthy to shame. What the world thinks is worthless, useless, and nothing at all is what God has used to destroy what the world considers important. God did all this to keep anyone from bragging to him, boasting before him. The cross is about what am I willing to give up in order to serve and love God. So it's much more than stopping to do the bad things. It's also about our willingness to give up the good things in life in order to serve God. Are we willing to surrender the good things in our lives in order to serve God? And money is a chief example of that. So the second question we have to ask is, what are the attitudes we see in ourselves on a regular basis? Now, two weeks ago, we talked about how God is more interested in the attitudes, the thoughts, and feelings of our heart than he is in our external actions. God judges the heart. You know, it's, for example, Jesus says, you heard it said you not commit murder, but I say if you've, you know, hated a man in your heart, you've already committed murder. And, and so... You know, so we have to go back and say, okay, we may have committed our lives to God and Jesus, but we may still struggle with attitudes that go back to a pre-Jesus mindset or attitudes that have been shaped by our culture around us that are so prevalent in the world. What is most important in my life? How does that work out in my attitudes about money and physical things I have? 
Tim Keller equated this to branches on a tree. We see the branches, but we can't see the process of life flowing through those branches. You know, so we ask ourselves some questions. Do you look at people that have more things than you and envy them? Do you wish that you could have those things too or your life would be better? That you would be happier if you had them? You know, when you see an ad on TV about something that interests you and you simply say, you know, I got to have that. Man, I, life would be so much better if I had that. Well, what does that say about your attitude? Do you worry about money? Like I was worried about money early on. Are you always trying to figure out how to get more? An interesting dynamic that is very true that if you have a lot of money, you are often always wanting more. Why? You spend more. It becomes an obsession. You don't have enough. You want more. Always new and better things. You never have enough. You would think that a wealthy person would say, reach a point of contentment. Some do, but most do not. Most who gain great wealth continue to pursue great wealth. They are never content. They always want more. That's an established fact. But can, you, but can you also be poor? You can also be poor and really struggling to pay the bills and worrying about money. Just as much or even more than a person who has a lot of money. It can become an obsession that says, if I get this right, everything will be okay. That's where I was early on in our marriage. You know, Sue Ellen didn't want to be around me when I paid the bills because I was, I was a miserable person because I was always struggling with it. You can be poor and be just as obsessed with money as a person who is wealthy. Another attitude you may be, notice. If you have a bad day or you're sad or you're kind of depressed, what's your preferred solution? Is it to go out shopping and buy something new, to splurge on a meal or to splurge on something? You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that once in a while, but if it's a repeated pattern in your life, what are you saying? You're turning money into your source of happiness and saying, if I have this new thing, I'll be okay, I'll be happy. If that's a repeated pattern in your life, and I know for many it is. And what happens? You know, it leads to kind of that kind of impulsive buying and high credit card balance that never gets paid off. You know, so we can carry attitudes in there, even though we love Jesus, that maybe suggest to us something different in terms of who we are and our loves. And third and finally, what are our outward actions like? Now, you know, if, if we've looked at the roots and the branches and the outward actions are the leaves, the nuts, the flowers that are produced, because you can see those physically. How do you respond to the poor? In this text, Jesus told the man to sell his possessions and give money to the poor. Now, we're, we're going to talk about that more specifically another time. But if you know someone who is struggling, are you willing to read your resources to help them in, in a right way? You give money to support ministries that care for and minister to the poor that are marginalized, that are struggling. Aliens, immigrants, you know, the Bible says the, the alien in your midst, well, that's immigrants. We have a lot of refugees and immigrants. That's the same thing the Bible talks about, the alien in our midst. I'm not talking about giving money to a person with a sign that are homeless at a stop sign. Most likely that's not helpful. That's only encouraging a dysfunctional lifestyle. But do you have any connections with the poor and in, 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 in supporting and caring for? How do you think about giving your resources to God's work? You know, the Old Testament teaches a tithe, 
I don't think the New Testament specifically teaches the tithe. It teaches percentage giving. If you have more, you give more. But I do believe Jesus kind of assumed in the fewest comments that our giving would start there. The interesting thing about Christian giving to support the church and Christian ministries is the more influent, affluent we have become as a culture, the percentage giving level in churches has continued to decrease. The more affluent we have, the giving has gone down consistently. The average percentage giving in a church, Bible preaching church, where people claim to follow Jesus is now less than 3% of their income across the board. What does that say? More affluent, but giving less. What does that say? Now, obviously, if you're on a fixed income and barely meeting your bills, God knows that there are seasons in life where we can give more or can't give more. But even in that case, Jesus made an interesting recommendation that says you can be on a fixed income. And I, you know, I think about that, so I'll are moving to a fixed income when I'm done here. But Jesus made a case that you can still give generously. You know, in Mark 12, Jesus is in the temple area watching people putting money in the, in the offering plate. And he praises this widow who put in two copper coins saying she gave more than all the rich because out of her poverty. So it's not about amounts. It's about our heart and what we want to do and how we love and serve God. Do you approach your, you know, how do you approach your giving? You know, early on in our marriage, I would approach giving, I'd pay the bills, and I'd figure out what's left over, and I'd give. But somewhere along the way, it began to shift as I realized I need to determine what I'm going to give first, then I'll pay the rest. Because if we approach giving from the standpoint of, I'll just pay whatever's left over, what Jesus is saying, money has a pretty powerful hold on our lives. Are there times when you see a need and you're willing to sacrifice something personally to help someone else out in a community or a specific tragedy? What controls our spending? Your plans and desires or God's call on your life as a follower of Jesus? And that's what this text is all about. You know, in many ways, this is really, as I said, my final sermon series as a pastor here because when I get to Christmas, I'll do the Christmas series, and that's, that's valid. But when I first read this passage in Mark 10, it struck such a nerve, uh, a response in my heart that there are these themes that run through that really tell us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If I had done this message series 30 years ago, the themes would have been a lot different. They would have been a lot different. I wouldn't have re recognized half of what I've ta been talking to you about in the same way. But what that means is, is that, you know, we always, as a disciple of Jesus, we're never too old to learn, to continue to grow, and to understand what it means to follow him. You know, a couple of these themes, this one and I think the one on poor, I've only come to begin to fully appreciate until the last seven or eight years that I've been here as your pastor. It's never too late to learn. It's never too late to grow in our walk with Jesus. It's never too late to reevaluate our understanding of the gospel and to allow God to change how we live our lives. There's always something new to grow in and learn. Let's pray.